You are listening to the Living Truth Podcast with John Corr and C.L. Mitchell. Please stay tuned to Living Truth as we engage in an in-depth journey of discovery through the discussion of God's Word for the purpose of devotion and godly living. We pray that you would be blessed through today's conversation and that God would sanctify your heart in truth, for His Word is truth. Good afternoon. Welcome to Living Truth. My name is John Corr, and with me is my friend, the Reverend C.L. Mitchell. C.L., it's good to see you, man. It's good to see you as well. Good to be back and recording and uh, doing our thing. How you been? I have been well, enjoying this delightfully cool weather. Oh, yeah. Now, Arizona and cool weather, that happens a little bit out of the year, just a few months, weeks out of the year, and we get to enjoy the coolness. So, Ah, but they are most glorious. Oh, awesome. <laughs> well, um, speaking of cool weather, we're in, we're going to be in some cool waters today uh, with Jonah. He's going to be uh, thrown overboard, perhaps, you know, if we get that far. It's know. a whale of a tail. It's a Shall whale we of a tail. continue with the puns? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, if this is your first time uh, listening or overhearing our conversation, as we like to say, uh, welcome we're two friends who like to talk about the scripture and uh, are delighted to have you with us. If you want to listen to past episodes, you can at passionforhisword.com. Click on the Listen tab and you can listen to the Jonah series that we're doing right now or any other series we've done in the past. Uh, leave us a comment or even comment on our Facebook page as well. Uh, so anyway, so today we are in Jonah 1 and we're going to dive right into it. And uh, if you have your Bibles, or if you want to follow along, you can, uh, those of you who are listening. Um, Jonah chapter 1 uh, has two two main scenes, you know, and uh, two main things that happen as far as in those scenes. And of course, the first thing is he gets called by God to take, deliver a message, okay? And then his reaction in scene 2, and what happens because of that. And uh, we'll see what happens. So let me get into the scripture here. Um, it says now in Jonah 1, it says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship that was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into, the, uh, into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now, that's the first scene. Now, I don't know about you, when, if I'm reading or either reading scripture and I'm reading about a prophet, um, I don't expect what Jonah does here to, to run away. What's up with that? Who is, who is this guy I think he is? Well, I think the situation uh, that is the main event that drives the narrative is what's driving the prophet. And, and John, I'm very impressed by uh, the author here. Yes. Because he's going to employ uh, several literary devices. This is a small book of four chapters. It's, it's a tiny book. But it's impressive literarily. It's very impressive. Um, and it's in the scripture. It should be impressive. Granted. <laughs> it made the final it made the final cut. That's so the Trump card, somebody, right? The divine impression. Somebody got it right here, okay? Yeah, I'm I'm really impressed by that. But um when I'm looking at this particular passage, this passage starts off uniquely as I'm looking at it, and it starts off with this phrase 
the word of I am. Right. Right. The word of I am came to Jonah. Now, th- that's no small business within this entire narrative yeah. or this entire story, simply because you know, there are two halves of this story. Chapters one and two divide, and then chapters three, four. Right. The first section, major section, is chapter one and two. Right. Second major section is three through four. Right. The same phrase begins the second se- right. section. Right. In other words, this phrase that opens the book is driving the book. It's driving his response and everything that's going to happen. Right. But you know what's interesting is is I think about, and you like to look at the grammatical, textual, literary so do you. level. I do, but I, I'm... <laughs> <laughs> you know, you eat this uh, for a cereal every morning, you know? <laughs> My question, one thing that just struck me is I'm looking at this, the word Lord came to, to, to Jonah... You know, obviously that's repeated in other other prophecies. You know, the word yes. Lord came to so and so. You know, that's you know, but it's almost as if to say it's you know when you have that one person in your life that if this one person calls you up, you know that maybe it's an older gentleman or mentor or older lady in your life or somebody of importance. They call you up. That's the person that has so much weight in your life that no matter what you're doing, you drop everything and you attend to what they want, right? Or, or you would like to believe so. You would like to believe so. You know, when so-and-so calls, you know, then that's the person that no matter what, they have your attention, you know? And and so it's sort of like when the word of the Lord comes to a, a prophet or a person in, in the scripture, you know, it doesn't happen every Sunday, let's say. Or that's, it happens on rare occasions or on, you know. But when it does come, you expect, oh, this is important. I'm supposed to do something with this, right? This is not, you know, I'm going to ignore that or, you know, just delete the text or whatever. Here, Jonah is hearing the word of the Lord, and he knows it's the word of the Lord, right? And we know Jonah is a prophet from other scripture. Uh, we looked at that last time, Second Kings 14. But it doesn't have, but something is amiss here because of what he does. You know, he's he's... He doesn't respond in the way you think he's going to respond. Does that make sense? Yes. Uh, uh, John, if I understand correctly, first of all, this phrase, the the word of the Lord, right? Yeah. This phrase is used 242 times within the framework of the First Testament. And I can see you counting every single one. (laughs) (laughs) It's a very important phrase. Right. And it's not a phrase to be taken lightly. Secondarily, as you said, Jonah is familiar with... Right. With the word of the Lord, right. the voice of the Lord. Um, and in 2 Kings uh, chapter 14, verse 25, he successfully prophesied to Jeroboam II of right. Israel, the northern kingdom, right. um, uh, who was a wicked king. Right. More should be said about that later on because right. Right, he's, he's, he's prophesying to a gentleman whose situation spiritually is not too far from this particular situation. Right. Um, and, and by the way, it becomes the backdrop for this book. So this guy is familiar well, with the voice and, of the Lord. And that's interesting because when you, you, when you couch it like that, he's a prophet of God speaking during a time of a really, really bad king. But yet in 2 Kings 14, he prophesies a good thing, the expansion of Israel, right? Yes. It's interesting here we have a parallel situation. Prophet of God speaking to a bad king, now or leader in Israel, or, or Syria rather, Ninevites, not concerning their good in the sense of, oh, I'll expand Israel, but their warning. And you would think that 
that Jonah would be more than willing to carry out a message um, or a hey, listen, in so many days you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna die, you know, unless you repent. You would think that Jonah would be more willing to deliver messages because he's probably gonna think, oh, they're not gonna repent because these guys are evil. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I, I think there's there's a play. John, that the author is using within the framework of this literal historical book. Um, if if we read verse one again, uh, this is what it sounds like. The word of I am came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Now, here's the interesting thing, because the author is using Jonah's name in order to highlight that he's a historical figure, to right, be sure. Right. And he's using his father's name to give us his genealogy to a degree, right. to establish his historicity, right? right? However, more is going on than that. Right. And that's part of the beauty of this literary um, uh, finery that's occurring here because his name means dove. Right. Jonah's name means dove. Do you now, know what his dad's name means? Uh, yes. Uh, God is either truthful or, or faithful. faithful right. right? And, and so here's what's happening. We are seeing the word of the Lord come to this guy whose name means dove. dove. And the dove in Leviticus and in the ancient Near East was deemed as an innocent fowl. Right. Right? A fowl that was associated with innocence, as right. it were. Um Amitai, the name, right? I am, I am is faithful, faithful or, or I am is true, right? right? So what we're going to immediately run into, and, and by the way, the names, the way the author employs the names is going to kind of give us a hint at the nature of the story right. and its irony. Like, okay, when he hears the word of the Lord, is he going to be innocent? Or faithful. Or is he going to be faithful or truthful? Or, truthful, yeah. or is something else is, going to happen? Is he going to live up to his name? That's interesting, you know, it's interesting because... Oh, I'm cutting off your flow no, of thought, please. bro. Okay, he. In one sense, you got to wonder: Will he? Will he live up to his name? And how come he's not? How come you know? Here's dove or pigeon. You know, some people like to call you know, okay, dove. You know, it's a white pigeon. And his dad's faithful. His God is faithful. God is true. Right. Maybe in one sense that's why Jonah runs because he knows God's faithful and true. Maybe he's running from that. Why he's running away? Why he's why he himself is not being faithful in his calling? Why he's not being faithful? Yahweh's faithful. Yahweh's true. He's the son of Yahweh's faithful and true, but yet he is not being faithful as a prophet. Well, in the words of the lyrical scholar Britney Spears, what we're going to discover is he's not. Wait, that wait, time out. Are you? You're actually quoting Britney Spears. I could help it. I I don't know one song of hers, and you. Uh, well, I, I I don't either. But the phrase "I'm not that innocent." What we're going to discover is he's not that innocent. Okay. As we go he's, throughout this book, I, I, I just, know that was horrible. Now there's a vision. Now there's vision and images, and everybody's listen, everybody's head that they're listening to. They're thinking of Britney Spears yeah, as Jonah the prophet saying, "I'm not that innocent." That's classic, you know. <laughs> anyway, hey, we're hey, listen. We love having fun here. We love discussing the scripture, and we know sometimes the scripture can be pretty deep and pretty heavy. And so, and we're not making light of it, but we're having, uh, we're enjoying the fact that that God is good and God is faithful and God is true. And sometimes the people He calls don't live up to that. Sometimes mm-hmm. the Christians, as we we Christians, we don't always live up to that name being Christ-like or little Jesus is walking around. What's cool about Jonah is is that he, in one sense, pictures us. Because we're all of us are called to be 
sort of prophets of God in the sense of bringing forth the good news of the gospel, right? And a lot of times we run away and and don't live up at to that faithfulness that we need to live up to. So we see a lot of times we see Jonah as as representing our uh, ourselves as Christians. And so thank God for his grace and his faithfulness in that. But anyway, so here's Jonah, son of faithfulness and son of uh, son of truth. Um, yeah, and he receives the word of the Lord, which, by the way, again, we know that he has received successfully historically. Right, right. And he has delivered it, um, and we have no reason to suspect that he had any difficulty with that. Right. That it was arduous to him in the least. Now, we'll revisit that concept. Yeah. But... Thus far, what we're supposed to do when we're reading this story, John, is we're not supposed to have a problem. There's there's supposed to be no suspicion on our behalf. Right. This entire thing seems so, to be quite normal. So okay. Far. So far. So verse one. So far, so good. It's like okay. Here's a prophet. Here he is. Then in verse two. Well, before we get to verse two, um, um, so so you have you have this, more. You have more in verse one. Oh. I'm holding back. Okay. What I have in verse one, right? So, so what what God is going to do? Yeah. Is when He prepares to speak, an aspect of His truthfulness and His faithfulness right. is going to challenge the borders or horizons of the prophet's ability to convey the message. No, no, hold on, hold on. That's that's that's. Pause there for a second, because that is that that's true of whenever God calls somebody to bring forth, there's always a challenge to, okay, the limits of God in the sense of how can God extend grace to this person or how can God call this person to uh, to repentance or it's challenging to the speaker himself, right? I mean, uh, the things that God tells, you think of the prophets, you know, Isaiah or Ezekiel or Daniel or whoever, Jeremiah, let's say, you know, Jeremiah, who has to prophesy for 40 years and get nobody repenting. You know, you talk about church planting failure. I mean, that's Jeremiah. But yet he's still, but God has to instill in him to keep speaking despite what everybody else tells him to do, right? So here's right off the bat, there's a, in one sense, in receiving the word of God, with it comes the responsibility and perhaps expectation that the 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 prophet himself will have to do something that's not comfortable. I mean, it's not comfortable telling somebody, you know, repent, or, you know, or or you know, what I'm saying it's Absolutely. there's this level of trust where God has told you to do something or to say something, and there's a level of oh, what if they don't hear me, or what if I don't like what I have to say, or you know, there's there's that level of responsibility and realization that. It may not go according to your plan. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I, it just just a caveat concerning that the infinite character of God that we are commissioned to present to others can become a challenge to the presenter, right? And become such a challenge that we struggle to convey okay. it. So, so here's one one example is in the New Testament. When Peter has his vision, right? Mm, yes. He has his vision of the, the the sheep coming down with all these creepy crawling animals, and the visions the the person in vision says, "Arise, Peter, kill and eat." Okay, and it happens three times, and of course Peter says, "No, I've never eaten anything unclean." And then finally, the you know the angel or God says, "Well, what God has declared clean, don't call unclean." That 
challenge to Peter to do something he's never done before, to go beyond where, you know, was sort of an example of that, where now then Peter, of course, gets up from his dream or his vision and, and realizes, oh, Cornelius and the Gentile is here, his, you know, where God sort of pushes the boundaries or takes you beyond what you thought the boundaries were, you know, and Absolutely. challenges you. I mean, Jesus did that all the time with hanging out with sinners and, and prostitutes and people who, people, you know, were quote unquote sinners, you know? In fact, in the section that you're referring to, Acts chapter number 10, yes. right, with the house of Cornelius, yes. and then the explanation that he has to give to um, um, the, the, the believers ju- in Jerusalem, right? The, right? right. In chapter number 11, to defend right. his actions, basically to almost defend God's actions. Right. And, and directly in that chapter, in chapter number 10, it's not just anyone speaking to Peter. It's Jesus, and he says, "Rise, right. slay, eat." Right, right, and and he uh, and he actually has the animals come down on a on a talit, right. which is a very Jewish garment, right? right? And so there's this conflict, this apparent contradiction that he's seen in his vision, and he actually says this. I think it's quite quite intriguing. No, Lord. Right. Yeah. No, Lord. I've never touched anything unclean. <laughs> and, and wants to declare to the Lord. Why he's out of order. Right. Right? And and wants to declare, that but, would step over the boundaries of my ritual purity. Right. But isn't that like Peter? I know we're in Peter, but this, the trail here obviously is... Connected. You, connective in the sense of you hearing from God and God commanding you or directing you to do something that you don't think that you're supposed to do because it's beyond what your understanding of God is. Jesus does that. Uh, in the New Testament constantly. And that's why the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all the scribes are like, who does this guy think he is? The law says this, and you're doing that, and how come you're you're working on the Sabbath and all kinds of yeah. know, questions. M- mind you that that God is not, in fact, asking either the the character, the protagonist, Jonah, to do something that is inconsistent with Torah. Right. He's not asking Peter to do something that is inconsistent with the whole of the First Testament. Right. He's not going to ask anyone in our day to do something that is contradistinctive to scripture. Right. But he will ask something that that causes us to stretch and that stretch may be consistent with the clear articulated right. word of God. And yet, while it is clearly consistent with the parameters of his character and his word, right. it is inconsistent with our comfort. Right. And that's, that's maybe that will lead us now into verse 2 of Jonah, because that leads us to now the actual command of God, which is very quick and very, very, um, I would say terse. Um, it is. It it's is very true. In fact, it's it's three successive yeah. commands. Uh, he he says, "Arise, go, and and cry against." And I don't have my Hebrew text open in front of me. Maybe you do, and I can. I you do. know, I don't want to lose our audience <laughs> by having to you know read the Hebrew text. But it, there's there's a couple key words that he does repeat. Um, actually, a couple times that uh, the the word uh, for arise. Uh, and go are repeated a couple times in this, and they're very. It's like as if to say, "Get up, let's go," like that kind of thing. Get up and go. Like yeah. there's like there's no time to delay, basically. Yeah, he 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 says this. He says first, um, "Kum, kum," which is right? to rise, to rise, right. or to stand. Right. Um, then he says, "Lech." Now this is important. Nice lech, pronunciation. Thank you. <laughs> he says, "Lech el Nineveh." Right. Now now this is important because this term "lech." 
right, is also found in Genesis chapter number 12, yep. when when God says to to Avram, lech lecha. Right, or he says to, to Elijah, uh, um, arise, go to, Jer- uh, to, to Zarephath, you know. Right. Same idea. There's actually some parallels between Jonah and Elijah in a lot of ways in the sense of things that happen to him, but Elijah doesn't run away from God. He runs to God, and as a contrast to that, so. Absolutely, and then he says, Ukhra alehi ha and and he says and cry against it right, right. um ki alata now here's the thing when you're looking at this these are three commands that come across like this right it's up but as you pointed out it's not just would you would you mind getting up no it's there's a sense of almost urgency to it that is. It, it, not just even you, almost you, it's it's like it's like if if we were to translate it get up now right so you have this sense of urgency that God gets, get up, let's get going, let's go to Nineveh. And what's, here's what gets me, and maybe we're jumping, across, um, jumping further in the story, but what you have is, it's while Jonah is going to be at sea, let's say, and he gets swallowed by the fish, you know, time's a wasting. In my, in my, in my mind, time's a wasting. If we, if we read the, the phrases here, arise, go, and there's a sense of urgency to go, and Nineveh is, you know, inland, um, you know, several days journey, let's say. There's no time to waste. In one sense, it's the grace of God that perhaps he pauses the timer on that and waits for, no, for or waits for his prophet to act, you know, get going and go the right direction. Um, he doesn't have to, but he does. Um, it's, it's, um, it's the grace of God that despite his, you know, here's the people in Nineveh who are going to, who are going to perish unless they hear these words from this particular prophet to repent. And meanwhile, this prophet is completely going off, off course, right? <laughs> He's completely going the opposite direction. Uh, d- doesn't even care. And these poor people are going to perish, you know? So I'm thinking in God's mind, I'm not God, obviously, Perhaps he's pausing that timer while his prophet gets his act together because he's concerned about these people. God doesn't have to do that. He could have said, well, if he doesn't make it in time, oh, well, you know, it's as if God God knows that his his person, his guy has to be there to deliver these messages so that they can respond appropriately because he cares about them, you know? You know, I want, I want to dovetail off of what you said and add two distinct thoughts to that, John. Sure. It's one thing for something to be an emergency to me. Right. But isn't it just a little bit concerning when something is an emergency to God? Right. Yes. Yes. That's that that's a great point. Cuz he know that's a fantastic point because he knows. He knows how many times short, right? Yeah. That 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 concerns me because I'm wondering what could be so serious right. just just at that point throughout scripture. What are the things that God speaks to that are of an emergency nature? Like, right. like this is from God's perspective. He's making a 911 call to right. his prophet. Do you, do you know, and just thinking about the parallel in, in verse, verse 2, he says, Arise, go uh, to Nineveh, the great city. And we'll talk about what that means as well. And cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me, Right. I'm, I'm thinking also about his message to to, uh, to Abraham, you know, when, when he visits um, Abraham about Sodom and Gomorrah, Gomorrah, right? Genesis 19. And he wants Genesis to know that the wickedness has come up before him as well there, and he, but now he wants to check it out himself. God does, right? And in one sense, he delays 
he delays destroying the city for a couple of reasons. One, after he, he hears Abraham negotiating with him, you know, will you save it for so many righteous people? It goes down to 10, you know, will you destroy it? There's 10 righteous people. The guy says, no, I won't destroy it. But then he still delays it until Lot and his family get out, right? And my 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 thinking is is that is that God is is in one sense there's an urgency to the fact that he is he's going to destroy wickedness and sin, but also at the same time he is willing to to forego that one on and Sodom and Gomorrah's sake if there's righteousness there if there's good people there. Uh, or to get his own good people out, and here with Nineveh to at least give them a chance uh, to to repent. You know, here these people, the Ninevites, were in Assyria. They weren't Israelites. They didn't have the oracles of God, the word of God, the prophets of God. You know, like the Israelites did. And so, in one sense, they're sitting ducks. And so, God is being gracious to them to even warn them. You know, and all so in in my mind here, this 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 prophet of God, Jonah. He's playing with he's playing with people's lives by the fact that he doesn't want to even give them the message that he wants to just go the opposite way because he doesn't want to deliver this message because they just might repent at this message and not be destroyed. Yeah, it's it's absolutely amazing to me when when God gives these three commands. Number one, go now. Right. Um, this does not allow for any sort of delay. This is of the utmost urgency from God's perspective. So whatever our level of urgent understanding is, you have to multiply that by infinity, All right? Right. So, so this is God saying, this has to be dealt with now. The, the second thing that he says is, um, go to Nineveh. Right. Now, I think, I think that is for me at least, um, what is it about Nineveh right. that God says um, rush there, right? And and then He characterizes it. He says um, the great city, right? So so in my mind now this is important because John, you and I know that Nineveh is a supreme place. Uh, it is a critical place. At this particular time, it is a gadol, a great city. Right. Now, again, there's a literary play going on here. Right. Because this term gadol, or great, is going to be used throughout this narrative right. in various ways, like great fish. And we have to define also, just to interject, great meaning either the size or great because of its importance. Or, or its effect. Or its effect, yeah. Absolutely. Because maybe it's not the size of, when you think of a big city nowadays, you know, like we're in Phoenix, and that's one of the largest cities in, North, in, in, in the United States. Okay, it's huge compared to Nineveh. Yes. Okay, Nineveh was, was maybe seven miles circumference, let's say. Okay, but the effect of Nineveh, the importance of Nineveh, it's a capital city. There's, you know, it's the powerhouse type, you know, it's the, 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 the main city of this great Assyrian empire. Maybe at this time, the Assyrians aren't that strong, but it has significance to it, right? 
Well, it has significance to it. It has had significance to right. it. Um, what's interesting is at this particular point, it's important to to um, suggest that the city is not the capital at Jonah's part, no. uh, uh, at Jonah's time no. of, of Assyria. Um, that's going to come 45 years right, later, later under right. Sennacherib, right? But this has already had a rich history since Genesis chapter number 10. This city has. Right. At the time of Jonah and for years, the, the capital was Kala. Um, right. But at this particular point, um, it still is a significant city. And in its historicity, it has always been a significant city. In fact, this city, more than any other, uh, kind of uh, uh, spoke of their pride, right. their accomplishment. Yeah. Uh, for goodness sake, it yeah. is invented by Nimrod or Ashur. Right. Right? Uh, this mighty but, but hunter before okay, the Lord. Okay, so beside the fact this is a great big city or important city or a city with great it's... It's the fact of whose city it is. It's the Assyrians, right? Yes. And the Assyrians had a reputation of being very ruthless when they would conquer people, right? And you can read excerpts from from generals of that time where they would would uh, sort of uh, be proud of what they did. They would cut people's heads off and put them on on on, on uh, poles and and really intimidate the the enemy the enemies they were facing and and just would kill them all, you know. And they would strike fear in people's hearts because they were so ruthless. You, you know, John, I, I love that you said that. And 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 by I the way, didn't mean to be so graphic, but that's no, what, no. I, in fact, they I'm, did. I'm going to be graphic, but not for the sake of being graphic. Or, or or trying to be crass in any way. But I think it's important that we actually quote some of their leaders yeah, so, that, but, but, so that it will be known. But but here's my point. This term for Gadol pertaining yeah. to a city is only used three other times in Scripture outside of the book of Jonah itself. It, the most familiar probably would be in Numbers 13, verse 8, when the spies are getting ready to go into yes, the yes, land, and the right? Giants are and 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 the giants are there and they see the fortified cities. Yes. And they describe this as great. Right. And what they mean by great, by the way, is not just size. And they haven't necessarily experienced the efficacy as yet. Right. But what they mean is we haven't stepped behind their walls yet, yeah. but it's great enough to have intimidated us. Yes. So this term that is being employed is not only full and rich with their historical significance yeah. or the efficacy of, of their pride, etc., cetera, uh, but it's also significant because this is an intimidating people. Well, look at what it says in the, in the text of Jonah 1, 2. Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, Okay, we talk about the great city. For their wickedness has come up before me. So we obviously there's the greatness of the city. There's a history of the city, the size, the you know it's walled. But then the their wickedness. Here's why I want you to go because their wickedness has 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 uh, has come up before me. Now it's not to say that God doesn't know about everybody else, but there's something about their wickedness that has caught God's attention to the point where I need to send a foreign prophet to the city to warn them. You know, John, there's a rarity about that. Yeah. There's a rarity about that because when he says cut off, when he says call or right. cry, right. and then he uses a preposition uh, over against them, right. this is the statement where God is actually telling him to to release a prophetic oracle of doom upon right. them. Right. Now, now, this is significant uh, because this is going to unlock a portion of this that is that is huge in this particular section. Right. And, and that is this, namely, 
Jonah is familiar with what such prophecies look like. Uh, you have an idea. Well, I just it, well, I have an idea because at this point, Jonah. We know in verse three, Jonah's going to flee, right? Later on, we know he tells us why he fled because he knew that God would be gracious. But he does not. God does not tell Jonah at this point. At least we don't see it in Scripture. He just says, "Go and cry against it." You would think. Perhaps Jonah, if he really wanted the Ninevites to be destroyed, that he would jump at the chance. That he would jump at the chance. Oh my! You're sending me an invite to cry against it. Oh, you better believe it, God. Something's something's not something's amiss here because he knows. Because he, wait a second, God, you're telling me to go to a foreign land. Okay, since when do you do that? Well, now we know another other books of the of the prophets that there's prophecies against other nations, you know. Yeah, we know that, but here's how those other prophecies work. Yeah. When God is normally speaking an oracle of doom yeah. against a foreign nation, yeah. he'll normally actually speak to his prophet right. and through his prophet to his people. Right. Not to the foreign Not nation. Not to the foreign nation. So they are indirect recipients right. of, of the word of the Lord. And here's the reason why. Because normally that foreign nation is oppressing God's people. Right. So he speaks to his people to encourage them that he's going to destroy those oppressors. Right, right. Or secondarily, he speaks to his people saying, hey, listen, this is going to come in as a form of chastisement to you. Right. And, and I'm comparing you to these people because um, you've stooped to the low level of these individuals. Right, right. Or third, he'll give them this kind of prophecy because it, it's something like, guys, do you see what I'm going to have to do this nation? Right. I'm going to have to do that same thing to you. Right. So within the whole of the First Testament thus far, nothing like but, but this, this is has different. ever been but done. But the fact that his reaction is what it is. Hey, go get up quickly. Go and cry against the city. I mean, here's the thing. In one sense, you can again, the parallel with Sodom and Gomorrah is still there because Scripture also says a lot was a preacher of righteousness. Didn't that say that? New Testament? Somewhere? Yes. Yeah, I'm just thinking about what it says there about Lot being that that righteous Lot. Which is interesting. Righteous right? Lot. Yeah. Okay, maybe he's not a preacher, but he's a righteous man, which means they knew he was different. Okay, here's the point. Here Jonah is going to speak a word against the Ninevites, against the Assyrians, and yet he pauses or he delays because he knows there's more to that because there's the possibility that perhaps they'll listen and repent. And Jonah does not like that. Well, I think I think there's even more than a possibility inherent within the prophecy. Yeah. I think Jonah knows something that we don't know. Um and and here's the thing but, because if we if if we're just reading this, yeah. right? It sounds like this to us. Get up now. Right? right? And and go to Nineveh, right? And cry out against it. Why? Because their wickedness has come up against me. Now, for us, that's like, if if these people are that horrid, right. why wouldn't you want to go cry? I, I think the answer is in another minor prophet. And I think that's what uh, uh, Jonah is afraid of. Right. Um, I, I want to turn well, for a minute. Okay, go, go, go ahead. You go. You go. I, I want to turn to Amos chapter number Amos, three. Amos. I knew you were going to do Amos. Yeah, because this is absolutely amazing. In Amos chapter number three, so you have two sections that I think are important here. So I'll read, first of all, verses one through seven. Hear this word which I am has spoken against you, sons of Yisrael, against the entire family which he brought up from the land of Egypt. 
He rehearses his, their history there, right? right? You only have I chosen among all the families yep. of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. So there is this pending uh, discipline right. that is waking up on them. Uh, do two men walk together unless they have made an appointment or unless they are in agreement? That is the context of this phrase. In other words, you wouldn't be walking in this unless you had absolute agreement with this kind of behavior. He goes further. Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion growl from his den unless he has captured something? Does a bird fall into a trap on the ground when there is no bait in it? Does a trap spring up from the earth when it captures nothing at all? If a trumpet is blown in a city, will not the people tremble? If a calamity occurs in a city, has not I am done it? Surely the Lord God, or I am God, does nothing unless he reveals his secret counsel to his servants, the prophets. Right. Namely, right. this is a statement suggesting if God is getting ready to send gloom and doom on you, right. he's going to warn through a prophet. Right. So now you jump to the significance section in chapter number five, and, and this is where the ringer is. In chapter number five, verse number three. For thus says, I am God, the city which goes forth a thousand strong will have a hundred left. And the one which goes forth a hundred strong will have 10 left to the house of Israel. Now he's talking about taking 90% yeah. of, 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 of the, the people that go out as warriors. Um, for thus says, I am to the house of Israel. Seek me that you may live, but do not resort to Bethel and do not come to Gilgal nor cross over to Beersheba for Gilgal will certainly go into captivity and Bethel will come to trouble. Seek I am that you may live or he will break forth like a fire, O house of Joseph, and it will consume with none to quench it for Bethel. This is what he basically says. I am on the verge or the cusp or the precipice of bringing doom upon you and discipline. Yeah. Yeah. So with all of that pending and your wickedness, here's my statement. Seek me so that I can completely, absolutely cause that to dissipate because right. I don't want to do it to you. So, I think that's what Jonah is yeah. hearing here. Yeah, so he knows when God warns, there's a possibility that God will re relent as well, that God doesn't want, that God doesn't take pleasure in destroying the wicked, right? He doesn't take pleasure in, in you know, if he's going to warn somebody because he wants them to repent and Jonah can't live with that. It, listen, when God speaks to Ezekiel, yeah. he, he says this, and I think this is essential. John, you know this. Yeah. I find yeah. no pleasure yeah. in the which, death of the wicked. Which, which tells you something though, because Jonah's reaction, it speaks a lot because here's the thing. You know, as a Christian, sometimes you know we we are told we are commanded by God to to love our enemies, right? But sometimes you really want those people to get it, right? Because you want those. You know, think about it. if you're a Christian, you think about certain people groups or certain people that don't have the behaviors that you want them to have. You want them to fry. No, God says, I don't take pleasure in that. I don't have people on my list that says, oh, I want these people really to fry. No, I want them to come to repentance. That's a challenge to to believers because we may be just like Jonah. You know, instead of the Assyrians, let's say it's a certain class of people that don't live up to your to Christian standards because they're not Christians. And so you want them to fry because 
you don't like what they do. And God says, I want to save them. Well, look at a couple of analogies, right? Yeah. Let's go further into Ezekiel and into his ministry. God does nothing less than leverages his life. Oh, yeah. With the people to whom he's preaching yeah. or refuses to preach. He says this. He says, if I tell you to warn them. Yeah. And you don't? Yeah. It's on your it's on your hands. It's going to be on your hands. Yep. And by the way, your blood will be instead of their blood. Right. Now that's strong. That's strong. Those are strong words. So, so if so so what is the purpose of Ezekiel's prophecy? Not to not to say God's going to destroy you ha ha ha. Right. But to say God doesn't want to destroy you. That's why he's telling you you're right. on the verge of destruction. Right. But see, there's the thing. That's what Jonah recognized. He knows the heart of God. He even says it later on. I knew that that you would uh, that they would repent. I knew that you were gracious, right? I knew that's why I ran. He says that later on in chapter four. Where it was, so it tells you. So here we're getting a revelation about the heart of Jonah and about the heart of of the here's you know the the, the man of God that's that's supposed to deliver this message of warning. He wants to see them fry for one thing, and God says, "I I want to warn them so they at least they have a chance to to repent." And you're the only one who's going to be able to deliver a message to those people. Well, let's go further. Look at the shepherd Moses. Yeah. I mean, he's dealing with throngs of people, right? Right. Who, by the way, whilst he is up on the mountain. Right. Are totally rebelling. Receiving the commandments that are intended to be from a wise God and give them life. Yeah. Right? They're down there wreaking havoc yeah. with a golden calf. And yeah. God has had it and says, I'm going to destroy them. Right. This guy does not separate himself from the people or the incident. Right. In fact, he again leverages his own life and says, God, if you're going to destroy them, right. kill me. But see, that's the see, that's what you expect, though. Because you have somebody who's, who's humble and concerned with people. Whereas Jonah, he's concerned about himself. Really? Well, what about the quintessential figure of, of Scripture, namely Jesus himself? Right. Who, who is God, a very God, the Son. Right. And he stands over Jerusalem. Right. And he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou who stoned the prophets. Yeah. These are his emissaries right. that he sent. And, 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 and kill those that I sent to you. How I long to gather you as right. a hen doth gather her broods. But you will not. So, so here, let's just maybe just pause because, in one sense, people may have a concept of God that He's always wanting to get after them, right? Oh, God's punishing me here. Oh, God's punishing me there. Which here, even just these, this the fact that God would warn, and He's more concerned with not punishing you. He's more concerned with warning you and leading you out of that, and leading you to repentance and to realize His love for you. That's the the the. The concept that people are to have of God, especially here in the Old Testament, is not of one of God of judgment and punishment. Yeah, he does that. But he does he does the punishment part of after long, long, long periods of, of, of warning, you know. Yeah. God is a God who is gracious as well. And for him to send to to send a prophet like Jonah, for one thing, it tells me about the grace of God. Why would you choose somebody like Jonah, who you know he's going to turn tail and go the opposite direction? You know, what does it tell me about God's grace in choosing somebody like him? He could have chose. He could have found somebody else that said, "You bet, God, I'll go and I'll do what you say. I'll no hesitation." Their story, the story of Jonah, in one sense, is is going to become a story about Jonah 
more than it is about the Ninevites, more than it is about the Assyrians, more than it is about the whale. It's going to be about, really, the two main characters in this story are Jonah and God, and how God works, hopefully, on Jonah's heart. This is, a, this is really, in one sense, an expose of, of Jonah's own heart. And in one sense, it's also a challenge to, to the Israelites in that context, and to believers today as well, as far as how do we see people who are destined to perish? Yeah, I, 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 you remember earlier I said I was going to make two points, and, and one... Was that in English or Hebrew that you said that? Because I, no. <laughs> I lost that one. <laughs> yeah. One was concerning um, how the prophet hears the word of the Lord, right? right? But here's the second. If you notice, God gives three commands, right? Yeah. These yeah. are not three sub- suggestions. Right. They are three commands that are very strong. And, and I'm challenged in this area because it directly connects with this verse. Um, God says, exclamation point, get up. Get up now. Yep. God says, exclamation point, go right. to Nineveh. Now is right. the emphasis. Is, is the, um, the, the emphasis. Right. And, and the third is, God says, cry against. Right. And he does it in a very forthright, forward, forceful manner. Here's the thing that I'm concerned about for myself, John. Sometimes we want to relieve, we want to, as preachers, um, teach or preach the word of God yeah. and relieve the people of the insistence of the voice of God. Mm the sense of the urgency behind right. the message. And and I don't think that that's good. I don't, that's, I don't think that's right. Because yeah. when God is speaking with all of the effulgence of uh, the, the, the force, right. we have to not try to add to soften that force the blow. ourselves. Yeah. But we shouldn't soften the blow. Yeah. That blow needs to come because there's something communicated with that blow when God says, now. See, God help us if, if, if we do that, you know, in the sense of soften the blow of God's message and change it so that it doesn't have its effect it's supposed to have. You Absolutely. Know, God help us if we, if, you know, whether you're teaching somebody or, um, preaching or communicating with somebody what god's word actually says you know i i it's if you if you're so afraid of how they're going to react up to you that you take it personally and you just decide to to change what's said can you imagine if if jonah actually gets to Nineveh and changes the words and says saying oh in in so many days you'll their, your city will be destroyed and he says he might if he changed it to like in so many days Oh, God may do this, or you know, or or just really doesn't say destroyed. You know, he he. It's like it's like preachers today don't that don't preach on on hell, you know, or, I mean, or I mean, sin or sin. Um, well, Scripture teaches that, and yeah, it's not popular. And maybe we can re, instead of calling it sin, calling it a condition, call it a, uh, uh, you know, some a, some uh, bad habit, a bad habit, right? or a lifestyle. You're softening the blow, basically. What you're doing is you're changing the effect it's supposed to have. It's sin in God's eyes, which means God help you, you know, if you do that. Um, well, John, I think that's part of the third point that I want to make, namely this. You need to know, I need to know, both of us as preachers need to know this, that part of the blow involves the mercy of God. Yeah. 
That's right? true. If we're communicating, if God says something that seems so hard, so forceful, so so harsh, we need to convey why he's saying what yeah. he's saying in the spirit in which he's saying. Yeah, and that's, imp- that's, also, that's a very good point because sometimes people, some people, and these are the angry preachers out there, they get off on telling people they're going to hell, right? They don't see it with tears in their eye. They see it with a smile on their face. That's not godly. That's that's not the sense of the no. text. What is that? Westboro yeah, Baptist? The, yeah, is, is no, that, that's, that's where, where they show up to yeah, make fun no, of people's that's, deaths. That's wrong. Th- that is completely it's, contradistinctive no, antithetical to the word of God and to the heart of God. It's here's what it is. You speak the truth with love. Absolutely. You sp- and sometimes sometimes it's warning somebody with with tears in your eyes. Because you're delivering them, you're delivering the truth to them. Lets you have to confront somebody about sin or whatever, and you do it with gentleness, right? Uh, and in love, and you're speaking the truth in love because you know, at the at the end of the day, you're more concerned about them. You you have a heart for them, and you want to see something change in in this person or people. And it's because of their con- you're you're speaking out of concern for them. That is really the heart of God, as opposed to yeah, I'll I'll totally go there and tell them that they're be, they'll be destroyed. That's not the heart of God in the sense of being speaking with glee, speaking with 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 laughter or a smile on your face. Yeah, and here's Jonah at the end of the day sitting with his pop bag of popcorn overlooking the city, waiting for God to destroy it. And of course, you know yeah. that doesn't happen. May I borrow for a moment from the text that you mentioned in Ephesians four, and yeah. just say this? I, I I want to just you know. Um, um, r- r- Revel in the you can text borrow. It's, it's not mine to, right, right. Uh, to give away. It's <laughs> yeah. yours. You can borrow it all you want. Here's the thing: it's not loving not to be truthful, right? And it's not truthful not to be loving, right? And if you look at Jesus, he's full of grace and truth, and right. he's able to tell the truth in love yeah. and to love truthfully, yeah, and to love in a way that does not rob you of knowing the truth that's necessary for your deliverance or salvation or your rescue. And so we really don't do God or people any favors by withholding the word of God or the voice of God, the sense of God, the inclination of God behind the most difficult commands that God gives. Okay, so Jonah is called by God to go to, to Nineveh. And what's interesting is that the way that God phrases this, right? He says, arise, go, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Now, okay, Jonah obviously knows what that is about because his reaction tells you, and I don't want these people being saved, but maybe, you know, we can elaborate a little bit on just exactly how wicked they were besides cutting people's heads off and things like that. They were a pretty ruthless bunch, the Assyrians, you know, and and, uh, maybe maybe fill in the gaps of what that looks like because the more we can describe it perhaps the more gracious the amazing wow god would would give these kind of people a chance um so maybe we could talk about that before we wrap up this episode. Absolutely. I think it'll help us to gain a sense of why we should be serious, sober, and yet realize the profundity of the mercy of God wrapped within the message, right? Um, First of all, it's important to realize that um, the prophet Nehum, or Nehum, Nehum, right, 
writes to the same audience 100 years later. Right, and that's not good news. <laughs> no, it's not good news at that <laughs> <For> point. <them. laughs> but here's what happens. In, in, in both periods, they have a history of extraordinary over-the-top cruelty, right? Right, like way over the top. In fact, I quote George Rawlinson um, in his writings on the ancient monarchies. He says that they loved to employ impalement Yes. On a sharpened stake. Yeah. It was their favorite method of execution and uh, extreme cu- cruelty. He says, a pointed stake was placed in the ground and the victim was then impaled upon it through his stomach, the stake penetrating inwardly up to his breastbone. And yes. Continue. It, another common mode of executing captives was by crushing the kneeling victim's skull with a mace. Others were put to death by beheading them with a sword or by burning them alive in the fire. And Assyrian bas-reliefs from excavated ruins also depict executioners flaying the prisoners with a knife. The victim was tied by his wrists and ankles to stakes in the ground while the skin was removed from his body with a knife. Mutilation of prisoners was not uncommon with the Assyrians who cut off their victims' ears, nose, blinded them with hot irons or plucked out the tongue by the roots. And by the way, they yeah. would build pyramids, right. mind you, of the skulls of yeah. the victims. They were cruel. And, and then, let me read you an example of uh, from one of the leaders. Um, and this is, we're just talking about the physical torture data with people. That's just the physical torture. Uh, this one leader uh, says, uh, I stormed the, the mountain peaks and took them. In, in the midst of the mighty mountain, I slaughtered them. With their blood, I dyed the mountain red like wool. With the rest of them, I darkened the gullies and precipices of the mountains. I carried off their spoil and their possessions. The heads of their warriors I cut off, and I formed them into a pillar over against their city. Their young men and their maidens I burned in the fire. I built a pillar over against this, his city gate, and I flayed all of the chief men who had revolted, and I covered the pillar with their skins. Some I walked up uh, up within the pillar, some I impaled upon the pillar on stakes, and others I bound to stakes around about the pillar. So this is some of the, just the physical cruelty they would... Uh, can you imagine if the Assyrians were coming your way how petrified you would be, or if you have heard the Assyrians attacking your loved one's city and the vengeance you'd want against these people. Can you imagine the the utter hatred you would have towards these people? But that wasn't the only thing they did. Oh, no. that The person you were quoting was Ashur Paul the II, second, yeah. and, and he is mid-8th century. He is, yeah, yeah. Right? But you also have Shalmaneser III, and he describes with great pride, yeah. as did the previous king, yep. his exploits and cruelties. He says, I stormed and captured the city. Multitudes of his warriors I slew. Right. His spoil I carried off. A pyramid of heads I reared in front of his city. Their youths and their maidens I burnt up in the flames. Right. He says, um, Ashurbanipal said, I pierced his chin with my keen hand dagger. Yeah. So, so now, um, but okay, <laughs> this is, I mean, this is like, you think of the, the worst movies you can just, you know, I'm thinking, I don't oh. know, just, it's just horrible. I'm just, John, you, this is double R rated. This is, this is, this is NC-17 kind of stuff. But, but they also did with, with people groups as well. Oh, yes. How they would take, 
you know, okay, they would take you and transport you to a different part of their, to to sort of avoid uh, uprisings. They would take your people group and move you to a completely different part of the, of the empire and replace you with another group. So you were in a new place, you were away from home, you had no, you know, you were just the psychological, I can't imagine the psychological warfare or the effects that it would happen on you. If you're somebody on the outside, knowing what these people did, I don't know about you, but I, in one sense, I can, I can side with John and say, oh man, I want these people to burn and burn because you know what they did to, you know, cousin so-and-so and brother and so I would want in, in my human nature, say, how can these people, hey, if there's anybody who's deserving of punishment, oh boy, it's these people, right? Yeah. Yeah. Why, God, would you even want to, come on, God, these people are so bad. Why? You know what? Their their awakeness rising up up to your to your to your ears that you would even it would be to me it would be a no brainer. Click, the, press the button. God destroy them right now. The fact that God would even warn these people is yeah. revealing. Someone who says through his jaw, I passed a rope, put a dog chain upon him, and made him occupy a kennel of the east gate of Nineveh. But, I, but, but hold, on, hold on, I mean, this is this is obviously graphic stuff. You you gotta think you gotta think. Wait, haven't they passed the point of no return? Haven't they passed the point of they've done it? They've done such wickedness that exceeds any warning. Well, in in our understanding, perhaps yes, but in God's mind, no. He's sending a prophet to warn them. I'm I don't know about you, but that is. You know, obviously, we have to stop this episode. On hopefully, we can wrap it up on a higher note than the descriptions of the the Assyrians. But the fact that God even decides to send a prophet to these kind of people that that these people in our human nature and human understanding have passed the point, right? Uh, maybe there's a certain people in your mind that have passed the point, the pedophiles of this world, mm. um, the rapists of this world. The, the criminals of this world, the, the people that you and I and this world have given up on, they, this, these people, in my mind, have passed that point uh, by a gazillion fold, and yet they have not reached the end point of God's grace and mercy. You know, John, I am particularly impressed with this idea that we should never, as servants of God, lighten the message yeah. or the voice. Secondly, we need to realize no matter how harsh or how straightforward the preaching or the word seems, mercy is included. Mercy, God's mercy is included. And we need to realize this. Mercy is a challenge for us, but it is never a challenge for God. So my prayer for you and I, is that we would recognize and we would come to him and ask, your mercy is so much greater than my capacity. So Lord, would you please not fit in my box of limited grace and mercy, but would you please undertake an effort to expand me to the fullness of your infinite grace and kindness of which I am a recipient 
so that when your word flows through my mouth, people might hear your truth in a way that loves them to transformation. Thank you again for listening to Living Truth with John Core and C.L. Mitchell. If you would like to hear this podcast again or previous episodes, you may do so at passionforhisword.com. That's passionforhisword.com. You may also like us on Facebook at Living Truth Radio Broadcast. That's Living Truth Radio Broadcast. Again, our prayer for you is that God would sanctify you in truth, for His Word is truth. 